Well, welcome to the final installment of uh, the series on the city. Uh, Chris has done an exquisite job. I'm not just saying that because he's not here. Um, he genuinely has, and he's left me very little to add to it, really, which is a bit awkward. Um, but do ch check out the podcasts. Uh, do check out the video casts. I mean, it, is, it has been a wonderful, it's a very short series, uh, three weeks. But as, one, as Chris pointed to, one of our deep motivations, one of our deep uh, inspirations for the series, well, the NLC, the National Leaders Conference at the end of January, um, earlier this year. And I was inspired by, and I'm indebted to, uh, Trey Shepard's talk on restoration, uh, which I'm actually going to draw on quite heavily uh, today. So if you want to uh, check that out on the Vineyard Church's podcast, it's way more amusing, it's way more engaging and energetic, and it's way more American than I could possibly deliver um, it, but it is worth checking out. I'm going to kind of tailor it for us, but do check out those podcasts. To recap the last few weeks, we've been talking about the city. Now, by definition, we don't just mean St. Albans, although that is where the majority of us are based or uh, commute to or whatever it is. But actually, it's anywhere where there's diversity or density. If you're in a place where there's a mass of people, that is your city. That is your area where God has called you to. And as Chris said last week, we're a church known for having vision for this church and beyond. But we've been asking a much bigger question, which is what is God's vision for this city? Chris portrayed it as a place of refuge, a place of justice, a place of culture, and a place of spiritual awakening. But how do we get there? Well, we start, as I, as I said and alluded to earlier, that we start there by being a prophetic message. In other words, we embody, we act, we uh, create in this place and through our relationships a picture of what it's going to look like at the end, that city that we're aiming for. And what do we mean by that? By building like next door as a family and compassion center of which Heather, who's disappeared from that area, uh, didn't she do a great job by the way? Notices. Yeah, we love having other people up to do notices. Um, <laughs> Heather is you know, just absolutely key in our role in developing feed and various other things. But we want to develop that place as a family and compassion center. And by developing feed, our regional food bank, we're saying to this city that we're not just some church tucked away at the bottom of industrial state, just hoping to grow bigger with numbers. That is not what we're about. More so, we are part of this city. This city is our home. This is where we belong. This is where we want to invest in. We long for this city to thrive. Neither are we blind to the pain that this city suffers. We want to bring comfort, and we want to seek its restoration. As we've been challenged by in Jeremiah 29, we are seeking the peace and the prosperity of our city because we know that if it prospers, we all will prosper. And so Chris urged us all, wherever we are, whatever we do, whatever we call work, be it in education, in healthcare, in housecare, be it in politics, justice, commerce, whatever it is, don't pull back. Don't hold back. Don't draw back. Integrate, but don't assimilate. Integrate. Seek the growth. Seek the success. Seek the prosperity of the city and the region. And at the same time, as Chris spoke well on last week, be the salt and the light in that place. And let's together, as we all do that in our various places and in our various neighborhoods and in our various cities and in our various workplaces, as we do that, let's build a community 
a new community that we want for this city to see and for it to be a prophetic message of what it will look like one day. Do you know, it's not just Jeremiah who speaks about the city. Isaiah never stops speaking about the city either. So much that sometimes his book has been called the book of the city. He talks about the city 60 times and always in such a positive way. And let's read one of those passages which some of us will be familiar with. And it's going to come up on the screen as always. Isaiah 61 from verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. You know, Jesus was huge on this passage. This is an incredibly important, incredibly stirring passage for Jesus. This embodies a lot of what he's passionate about. And you can tell that because it was the first thing he ever preached publicly. You know, if you're ever going to start a campaign, whether it's political or otherwise, the first thing you say is the thing that will define you. You put a lot of time, a lot of attention, a lot of thought and consideration into it. It needs to perfectly convey what you want to say and do with your life. And as Jesus starts, he starts with the poor, those who are economically broken. He goes beyond that. He talks about binding the brokenhearted, those who are emotionally broken. And then he talks about release from darkness, those who are spiritually broken. And then he finishes with this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This referred to the year of Jubilee. This was a time of forgiveness of debts and in a remarkable way. But also, once beyond the whole idea of forgiveness of debts, isn't just what you owe, it's actually a time of restoration. So, if there was land that once belonged to your family, if there were things that once belonged to your family, they were returned to you. And so whatever happened, whether you lost it in bad luck or foolish behavior, here was your time to be restored and start again. When Jesus shows up and he speaks this passage, it shows that he is not just here to deal with spiritual brokenness. He's not here just to bring people home and call them Christians. So much more than that. He is concerned with the individual, with the corporate with the social, with the emotional, with the economic problems too. He's saying, I'm for everything. I'm wanting to repair. I'm wanting to restore every single aspect of your life and the life of this city. Do you know, it's important to know this because Jesus is the head of the church. You see, we need to be clear that this church does not exist. uh, Sorry, this city does not exist for us, the church. We, the church, the body of Christ, exist to serve the city and its people. That is our purpose. That is the very reason why we're here. We exist to write a new story for everyone here, for the poor, for the hurting, for the oppressed, for the grieving, for the isolated. For anyone who lacks and needs hope, we need to have a dream for them and for this city. 
in the same way that Jesus dreams for it. That is why we're here. You see, we're not here to build a church. Jesus said very clearly uh, to Peter that he would do so, and the gates of Hades would not overcome it. Personally, I think Jesus was saying, look, just to make it clear, the gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. It's sorted. It's under control. Don't worry about the church. I'm going to take care of that. What I want you to build is the city. We're not here to build a church. We're here to build a city. There is nothing more powerful on the earth than the church. We, speaking on behalf of all the churches in this region, are the hope for this city. What is the church? What is the city? It's people. It's a gathering of people. So how do we build a city? By building its people. There are four ways we can do this, and I want to work through, and as I said, this is uh, Trey Shepard's kind of four points, but I absolutely love them, and they've really helped and transformed me, so I hope it does the same for you. First of all, there's renewal. This is the first kind of building. This is the Isaiah 61, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the church. It's where the presence of God is so tangible so real that we cannot deny his great and merciful love any longer. We are overwhelmed by his nearness and power and his presence. And as a result, our relationship with Christ and our relationship with the church is incomparable. There is nothing more important than that. We float on freedom. We dance with joy. Our hearts feel refreshed as if they've never been hurt. Our bodies are healed. Our minds are released from the constant self-criticism. We are renewed afresh. As part of this, there is a deep conviction of sin and a close following wonder and enjoyment of grace and love. How is that possible? We realize for the first time that we are utterly repulsive as sinners than we ever thought possible. And yet knowing that and knowing that Jesus knows that, and yet then he purchased us with his life that he saw a life so valuable that he laid his own one down for us. That as we do see that, as we discover that, we discover that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Our expectation and passion for worship, as Chris was referring to, Greg Thompson was referring to, the talk, etc. Our passion, our love, our expectation in worship is something that defines us. We are free in it. We are singing in the courts of our creator, God, knowing that he is our father. We are his children. He delights in singing over us, and so we delight in singing to him. Renewal is a wonderful place. It's an extraordinary feeling. It's a beautiful time. It's where we all want to be. But at the same time, it's often where we get stuck. You see, it's inward. The problem with renewal is inward. It's about the church. It's about, it's about us being personally blessed. It's often a time of self-focused experience. It's very safe. It's very comfortable, and it's very uplifting. And that's not always a bad thing. You know, we feel comforted. We feel loved, and we absolutely need that. It's an absolute joy to see the lives of those around us, our brothers and sisters, being set free in Christ, eyes open to God, and his love, and being transformed into a new creation. It's a beautiful thing to see. 
We celebrate it, but we celebrate as if we think that's it, we've arrived, we're home. Instead of realizing that renewal really is just the starting line of what basic Christianity should be. That's our, God's expectation for us, that we would encounter his love in such a powerful way in normality. See, renewal is great and a necessary ongoing thing. But we are people built for more than renewal. We are blessed to be a happy and content person. We're blessed to be a blessing. I thought you might say something about it. We are blessed to be a... So what's next? Verse 3 in Isaiah 61 says this. They, those who have been healed up, those who are poor, those who are broken, those who are uh, bound, those who needed set free, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord to display, uh, for the display of his splendor. The next thing that we encounter is revival. And this is exciting. They, as I said, the ones, they are the strong. They've become oaks of righteousness. They're the strong, the grand. They are the fruitful. They are planted and placed by God for the display of his splendor. As a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, people outside of the church are attracted to and sought out by believers, by people of the church, in the church. These are people outside who are not sure what they really think about God. But they say something is going on there and I want to see what it's about. And they find themselves being drawn in. On the one hand, unbelievers are attracted to a powerful changes in life. On the other hand, believers are burdened to pray and seek out other people. A deep longing and desperation for those who are still broken who are still hurting, who are still hopeless, much like we once were. Either way, there is fruit in these oaks of righteousness. In London in 1857, Mark will know this very well. <laughs> oh, sorry, my mistake. He said he's not that old. Um, in London in 1857, a 19-year-old preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon took to the pulpit at New Park Street Chapel, a church that could seat 1,500 people, but on average was attended by about 150 people. Charles Spurgeon was not only a great preacher, he was passionate about prayer. He set a lot of his time, a lot of his energy in forming structures of prayer where people would be constantly praying for a visitation of God. So much so that every single time he preached, he would have a group of people praying that God would turn up at that moment. He was desperate, he was hungry, he was purposeful about it. One year later, 150 people of attendance turned into 3,000 people. And while they were going through building work, which makes me chuckle, they met a Surrey Music Hall, and that was filled to its 10,000 people capacity. And one time they even met in Crystal Palace, and all 27,000 seats were taken. In 1859, Charles Spurgeon saw 1,000 people baptized. Another at the same time, this revival, as it were, in London was starting to break out all over, not just the nation, but over the world as well. In New York, there's a whole amazing story there. But in the same year, revival hit Northern Ireland. 
You know, once again, a group of people have been praying for a long time that God would visit them with a mighty move of God. And one day in a school in a town called Coleraine, there was a boy in the school who was just weeping and distressed. He was overwhelmed. And the teachers were like, I have no idea what's going on here. So they grabbed an older boy and they said, would you just walk him home? Make sure he gets home safe. Let him sort it out. On the way home, as they were walking down the lanes, this older boy turned to this younger boy and said, you know what you're feeling? That weeping, that, that despair, that's the conviction of God. What you need to do is get down on your knees and get right with God. And so this little boy got down on his knees, got right with God, was filled with power from the Holy Spirit. And they both went back rejoicing to the school. As they went back in, as they filled with the Holy Spirit, as they filled with his power, they walked back into the classroom. And all of the boys, the whole classroom, the boys and girls were separated this time. All the boys were suddenly filled with the presence of God. They got out from behind their desks. They fell to the floor. They were weeping. They were weeping so loud. The, the, girls side on the, other, the girls' classroom on the other side of the school heard the weeping. And then suddenly the presence of God fell on that place as well. And there, in their classroom, weeping broke out. Revival broke out. And if that wasn't enough, when all this was going on, when weeping was taken over the school, all the teachers, all the faculty were hearing this, and they were filled with the presence of God. Now, this is funny because it was near the end of day, and then suddenly the parents were turned out to pick up their scores and hearing this weeping. But the moment they stepped onto the grounds of the school, they were filled with the presence of God. They fell to the floor. They were overcome by his power. They were brought into a place of repentance. Their sin was exposed, but the love was poured in. A revival took place in Northern Ireland like never before. A hundred thousand people came to know Jesus. It was astounding, amazing. And just as a little side note, remarkably, this is in a place called Coleraine, which we have a Causeway Coast uh, vineyard church. And they are seeing most, many, many people come to know Jesus. I think latest statistics over a period of time is one in 30 people in that town go to uh, that church. It's remarkable what God's doing there. And in the same year, at the same time, you know, this revival was spreading out. He even visited Barnet for 10 weeks. I'm not sure why it was just 10 weeks. <laughs> but you know what happened next? In 1861, revival broke out in St. Albans. Revival hit this place. And it's remarkable. You know, one interesting document I have about St. Albans Revival, and I'm happy to make copies of that if you're interested, is there were no, this is what it said, there were no super Christians at St. Albans, just ordinary, humble, hardworking, faithful believers who were the backbone of their local churches. These were the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The St. Albans time, Times, which is now the Hearts Ad, Reported, in May 1861, visiting evangelists addressed as many as 1,000 people, crowded by eager people thronging the revival meadow. I have no idea where that is, but it sounds awesome. In the autumn, the meetings were transferred to the town hall, which many of you know, and the corn exchange, which was just behind it, with no drop in interest. And one evening, uh, Captain Wilbraham Taylor I described a local spiritual transformation in the slum area of Barnet. And he said this, The working of grace is manifested in the boys of Barnet, many of the very lowest, the vilest, and most ignorant, with their minds apparently steeled against every good impression, are now serving God in the enjoyment of happiness and peace. 
Meetings grew to about 1,500 people every night. Now, you've got to understand that the population of St. Albans at that time, that was one in every five people who were coming to be revived in St. Albans. This continued for four years with one, uh, one of the converted chimney sweeps experiencing the same revival power in Hartford and Luton. 1861 to 1865 was an amazing, God-inspired time of revival in this place. You know, as uh, I read about the revival, there are three things that the Oaks of Righteousness did that stood out to me. First of all, they committed themselves to prayer and expectation. They gave themselves, they gave generously. Just as a side note, there are four stories in this little document about people buying land and buying buildings for the city and for the church that made revival logistically possible. And thirdly, personal evangelism. And I've got to read you the story because it makes me laugh. A man by the name of John Trotter, who was one of the well-connected, invited uh, people in this revival. And it was because of him that we had so many people come and pray and speak at this city uh, during this revival in 1861-65. He was converted by his sister. A great record of this story exists. Um, Someone who was speaking told of one he knew, an Englishman, who had a sister living 300 miles distant in a foreign country. I'm trying a different voice. In Paris. The sister had become converted. Her brother, on hearing this, was displeased, thinking it very wrong of her, especially as her husband was absent at the time. (laughs) With the approval of her relatives, he set out to to visit her and reason with her on the matter. Arrived there, the sister said he might defer speaking to her till the morning. This is so Downton Abbey, isn't it? Uh, Till the morning, asking him to take a little book that she presented and read it. He did so. And in that little book, He lighted on the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The words no condemnation struck him. And then he knew knew very little of the Bible at the time. But the simple-minded man reasoned with himself, "There there is condemnation then for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And I am deed and not. The result of reading those words that he did not go to the ball as he intended. Instead, he, that very night, found peace. I'm sure you'll agree. Revival is amazing. That's why I spent so much time on it. It's exciting. It's passionate. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. And something we pray regularly for. We pray every single Wednesday morning with our local pastors. And this Tuesday and every month, we pray at Call to Prayer for revival. We want to see God make an appearance in this place in a powerful way. We want that. We seek for it. But as wonderful as it is, it cannot be our end goal. We have to ask the question, what are people being revived for? And this brings us on to the third one, which is reformation. When what has happened in the hearts and lives of people has so profoundly affected them, culture begins to change and society begins to reflect it. In the Welsh revival, so many coal miners, this makes me laugh, so many became followers of Jesus and stopped drinking in the pubs. Um, so, many, so much so that they stopped drinking in the pubs that the, clo- the pubs ended up closing down. Now, I'm not saying we have to close the pubs, but it is interesting, you know, if you think about binge drinking, wouldn't it be remarkable to see a drop in binge drinking in this area? People going out and having a great time without necessarily having to get wasted and call an ambulance. Culture began to reflect it. These Welsh, these Welsh guys were so foul-spoken 
And the donkeys were so, they, they rode and used, were so used to it, being commanded with F words and, and so forth, that when their hearts and their lives were transformed, when they got saved, their language began to change. And then they realized that the usual commands um, no longer worked. You know, they're, come, let's go faster. This is not working. And they had to retrain the donkeys because all they knew were swear words. Isn't that hilarious? The great awakening in England in the 1720s, 30s, and 40s, historians will say, was probably one of the major reasons why England did not have a bloody revolution like France did. Because the masses of poor were one to Christ, and a lot of their bitterness was taken away. And the church began to reach out and help. In Reformation, people change. It's not about better better leaders in power. It's not about better laws to govern, but better people who make a better city. Let's not just dream of lives, individual lives being changed. We need cities changed. We still need a bigger picture. It's one thing the individual's being built up. It's another thing to see the city prosper, which brings us on to our fourth and final one, restoration. What is our dream for this city? What is God's vision for this city? It's the building up of people. It's the good news. It's the healing. It's the freedom. It's the comfort. And God creating them to be oaks of righteousness. It's renewal. It's revival. It's reformation. Yes, please. But it's also restoration. In Isaiah 61 verses 4 to 7, it says this. They... Remember who they are? They are the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the oppressed, the blind, the grieving. They who God made into oaks of righteousness. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. What does this mean? The next couple of verses explain The first one, verse 5, says this, Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Which on its own is a completely random verse. But let me tell you what it means. A stranger was an outcast. They were unwelcome. They were undesired. They were unloved. For them, for that person, to shepherd flocks was to give them a position of power. It's to give them a position of honor, a position of trust. Restoration isn't just about people and practices. It's about undoing injustice, inequality. It's about realigning everyone as equals. Great mistreatments were righted through oaks of righteousness who sought to improve their cities and nations. Let me give you some examples of the, uh, the Great Awakening. In 1818, Elizabeth Fry became the first woman to speak in Parliament after witnessing the atrocity of prison life. I would say it made her sick, but this is in the 1800s. She almost fainted instead. But she gave a speech that would eventually result in the segregation of men, women, and youth for the very first time in prisons. And she was credited with inspiring Florence Nightingale. Another Christian you may know and probably should know, William Wilberforce spent his entire life, his money, his influence on on abolishing the slave trade. An act that finally passed, and after 12 defeats, he committed everything he had to this. In 12 defeats in 1833, he died very shortly afterwards. 
In the same year, after seeing how young children were mistreated, treated, Lord Shaftesbury led the Factory Reform Act of 1833. And after seeing how many people with mental health were just marginalized and kind of spat on and just ignored, they were kept so badly that he paved the way for what would eventually become the Mental Health Act. All these Christians saw an injustice, an inequality, a lack, and they dedicated themselves to better in their cities and indeed their nations. When you look at the city, what do you see? Do you see any group that's being mistreated? Do you see any group that's lacking in something? It doesn't have to be world-changing, but if God highlights it, we need to do something about it. Here's a very small example to take away from that absolutely amazing three stories I've just given you. A very small example. Do you know, I drop Bella off, my oldest daughter, three years old, at nursery every, well, a couple of times a week. And it's clear to me that there is an absolute lack of male teachers in nurseries and in primary schools. Now, the other thing with that is a lot of these kids are being dropped off by single moms. And it impacts me to think, do you know what? A lot of these kids will not maybe never have a strong, positive male influence in their lives. Now, I, I would love to do amazing things about that. If maybe you have an idea, a vision, a purpose, a plan. But you know what? I thought, there's something I can do. I don't work on Fridays. It's my, it's my weekend day off. So I said, as, as often as I can, I'm going to go into the school, and I'm just going to read a story with those kids. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to be a positive male influence. Here's a better example. A guy called Luke comes to this church. He's a partner in Debenhams, Ottaway, Solicitors, and St. Albans. It's all on the website. Uh, his website, obviously. Um, but he's also part of the Dragon's Apprentice Challenge. This is a center for voluntary uh, service initiative that gives tw- year 12s in our schools a taste of making a living as an entrepreneur. And then he commits not just the time and the energy to that and the money, but he also commits time as mentoring. He sees a potential. He wants to give them an opportunity. We are blessed in St. Albans in many ways. So why can't we take what talents we have, if you know that verse in the Bible, and invest it into something so much greater? And he does that. I love that. Verse 6. And you will be called priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and their riches you will boast. See, when the city sees us as Christians pouring ourselves out for the physical, material needs of people, the poor, and when it sees people being incredibly transformed spiritually and psychologically, then and only then will they listen to our words. If, you're, if we are not pouring ourselves out and making a difference, the city, all it will see is a church that's getting bigger. And all they will see is it, it's a power play. We're just trying to take over something. They will just see us trying to increase our territory. But when they see us pouring ourselves out for others, that's different. They'll listen. More than just listen, Proverbs 11.10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. In other words, there's a group of people that when they prosper, that, doesn't include, that does include being successful, making money, being prominent. When they are prospering, the city rejoices. The word rejoice is kind of a, a military term for a military victory which is kind of odd. But what it's saying is there's a group of people that when their city sees them succeeding, the whole city rejoices. It feels like it's a victory for the whole city. It should inspire us to ask the question of us as a church. How can we prosper in such a way that the whole city benefits and celebrates? 
the whole city would look to us and say, I don't exactly believe what they believe, but I can't imagine the city without them. They help so many people. They are so crucial to the life of the city. I don't know what I would do without them. One example of this is a local businessman who started uh, one of the world's leading brand extension companies with offices all over the world with clients such as Jeep, Coca-Cola, Smurfs, and Mercedes-Benz. Just a random quote, just to give you the kind of profile we're looking at. His mother used to come to Vineyard. He doesn't believe in God. He's not really that interested. But in honor of his mom's, mother's loving investment in the youth of this city, he is creating a fund for young entrepreneurs that they can be accessed through only two organizations in the city, one of which is Vineyard. Because he sees, he saw through his mom that even if he doesn't believe that the things this church is doing is something that he wants to invest in, he wants to invest in his people. More of that, please, Lord. And then verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of, instead of great disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. There are these kind of verses that we skim over reading in the Bible all the time, but it's filled with promises. Do you know, I was completing an application form for Bella to go to school. And one of the questions was, does your child have any special ability? As a loving parent, how are you supposed to answer that question? Nope, there's absolutely nothing special about my precious apple of my eye, doting, joy of my life, daughter. Nothing at all. Nope, pretty ordinary. But that's what the world expects us to write unless we have something special to offer. But God doesn't leave it blank. When we come before God and we have nothing special to offer, he doesn't leave it blank. He writes it. He completes it. He writes in his inheritance. When you see a blank space, God just sees lots of room to write in. When we come before God with nothing, he sees it as a great joy that he can pour out his best in you. That realization creates an eternal, everlasting joy knowing that God is and will always be more concerned about your future than you are. There are people in this city who are looking at their blank space and are trying desperately to write things that will make them look special to others so that they don't feel the shame or despair or feel like a failure. But you and I, we have good news for them. Where they lack, Jesus has provided in full, not just for the asking amount. The biblical restoration, idea of restoration is not simply to bring something of former and original, back to original condition, but always involves the idea of increase, of multiplication, of improving the latter state so it's a better place. Look at Job. Job God restored to Job double of what he had, what he lost. In Joel, it says, God will restore the years the enemy destroyed. In Haggai, the glory of the temple, of the latter temple, will be more, exceed the former temple. It's not enough just to remember the good old days of revival, the good old days of this city. We need to do some theological reimagining. 
We need to read our Bibles. We need to pray. We need to seek God. We need to get together on Tuesday and so forth to imagine what this city could be like if we dreamt the dreams that God has for it, for our society, for our city, for our nation. We need to dream those dreams. Would the band come back up, please? After bringing a a rebellious prophet, Jonah, to the city of Nineveh, God revealed to Jonah his very heart through some powerful words about the city. He said, Jonah, there are 120,000 people in the city. God had counted every single one of them. God knew every single one of them by name. Jonah, there are 120,000 people in this city that don't know their right hand from their left. How could I not be moved with compassion for them? Do we have that compassion for this city? Our story started in a garden, but it ends in a city. A garden is created, but a city needs to be built. We, the Vineyard Church, from this day forth, are building the restoration city of God. And until that city is built, we must offer a foretaste. We must commit ourselves. We must pour ourselves out. We must empty ourselves for the very people of this city. We must bring Jesus. We must bring hope. And we must do this in his name and in his strength.